1997, with the Sony PlayStation's runaway success, entrenched mentalities at Nintendo, and the proliferation of disc-based media, Square jumped ship from Nintendo and released a game that introduced me to not only Uematsu's work, but to the franchise itself. Final Fantasy VII. As narrator, I want to emphasise my love for this game without straying too far off topic. Suffice it to say that despite it having just passed its 20th birthday last year, its settings, characters, story and music all have a special place in my heart and it has remained my favourite video game of all time ever since I played it at the age of 12. Surprisingly, upon completion of Final Fantasy VI, Uematsu was not in a position to immediately turn his attention to the next game in the series. Between the aforementioned work on Chrono Trigger and the composition of 1996's Front Mission and Gun Hazard, Uematsu was left with only a year to craft the soundtrack that many of us have fallen in love with. This is compared to the two plus years that you had to create Final Fantasy VI's score. When looking back on the score without my rose-tinted goggles on, it's obvious that the quality of the music had improved significantly from the SNES era. The PlayStation's 24 audio channels and the extra space that CD-ROM afforded was not enough to give an orchestral score to the game though. Uematsu recognised that having CD-quality music increased loading times and caused performance to dip. When it came to priorities, there was no way that music would be worth such heavy penalties. This led to the game's music being rendered using the PlayStation's internal sound chip, with a MIDI synthesizer set in place of a recorded orchestra. When describing his approach for scoring Final Fantasy VII, Uematsu speaks of his attempts to reflect the mood of a given scene, as opposed to creating strong melodies. He felt that the game's swing towards a more realistic aesthetic wouldn't gel as well with his previous style of composing music that defines the game, so he had the game define his music instead. This sounds like he intentionally dialed back his work, and while there are a great many sullen, melancholy tracks, it's undeniable that they are classics in the genre and expertly convey the scene that they have been made to fit. Like Aerith's theme, which may bring a tear to the eye of someone who loves the game as much as Dave, Colin or myself. This piece of music is one of the most famous in the series because of its emotional resonance and the traumatic act of seeing not only a leading character but a member of your party being killed while you are forced to look on.
It wasn't all a case of making do with MIDI synthesizers. While Final Fantasy VII's score is filled with a huge range of synthesizers, with a real emphasis on percussion, it is also the first title in the series to feature a track with high-quality digitised vocals. Possibly the most famous piece of music in gaming history, One Winged Angel, is generally seen as Uematsu's magnum opus, featuring his signature merging of different genres to create something unique. He drew from Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring and his love of late 60s and early 70s rock music, such as the work of Jimi Hendrix, to create this intense and dramatic track to accompany the epic showdown with the game's villain, Sephiroth. So, so bringing it back round to the music, um, <laughs> arguably, arguably the most famous piece of work that he's ever made is "One Winged Angel," the the theme for Sephiroth at the end of the game. Um, I've didn't I've also done some research into that, and it's unbelievable how he put that piece of music together. Yeah, I think, I think I've I watched a video of him talking about it. But you you go ahead. But I know where I know where you're going with this. <laughs> so yeah, um, basically he he wanted um, a piece of music that an orchestra could play that sounded like a rock band, um, and he ended up just thinking up little pieces of music like four, uh, two to four bars, and then he would assemble them all and then rearrange them like a jigsaw puzzle, and that was how he created it. So like musical Lego. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Is, it's just insane. I don't think I've ever I've ever heard of anyone else assembling pieces of tunes together. But when you listen back to it, it actually kind of makes sense because there are a lot of kind of breaks. You can definitely split that song yeah. into parts. And uh I thought I thought that was really I thought that was really cool to Yeah, in the interview that I saw with him, I'm pretty sure he mentions that like he's never made music that way before and it's just and it's the the last time i think he's done it as well as we allude to in our conversation about one winged angel i was astonished to find that uematsu adopted an unorthodox approach to composing this song he would write down small chunks of two to four measures of music that he'd think up over the course of a day once he had 30 or so small pieces he stitched them together after assembling them like a jigsaw puzzle. One Winged Angel is the only piece of music that he's created in this way. With an original soundtrack that includes 85 tracks across four discs, lasting over four and a half hours, there's a lot of music in this game. 
We're not even going to cover the spin-off projects that have come after, including 2006's Dirge of Cerberus on the PS2, or the contentious Advent Children animated film. There are certainly far too many for me to share with you here, no matter how much I may want to. The score has been adapted, reworked and crafted into fully orchestral pieces, piano concertos and prog rock instrumentals. Before we leave it behind, I just want to share one of my favourite pieces of music from the game. This is Sid's Thief. Nineteen's Final Fantasy VIII opens with another of Uematsu's most impressive pieces of work, accompanying a fight scene between the game's protagonist Squall and his rival Cipher or Cipher. Never been sure on that one. It's clear that this opening scene was meant to send a message to players, with its fully voiced orchestral music and its still impressive visual fidelity. Liberi Fatali is one of my favourite pieces of Uematsu's music and I can still recall playing the game's opening over and over again just to experience the scene. Final Fantasy VIII played host to a dramatic range of changes for the series, with the aforementioned musical and graphical enhancements, but also in its departure from mainstays of the series up until that point. On-screen character design now strive for realistic proportions, although they maybe didn't quite get there, and the long-established use of magic points, or MP, was replaced by a finite number of usable spells. With this combination of adjustments to both the mechanics and the aesthetic of the series, the game was intended to set a new benchmark for video game storytelling and redefine what the series was known for. In a nutshell, the story centres around Squall Leonhardt, a 17-year-old teenage boy who is part of a school of mercenaries who pride themselves on being a peacekeeping force around the world. When a powerful sorceress threatens to bring the world to war, Squall and his cohorts are pulled into a conspiracy that spans multiple time periods and even takes a little trip out to space. With the protagonist in such a strange position, the game's emotional resonance often comes from observing how Squall reacts when placed in contact with other characters, 
be they friend or foe. Squall's personality is slowly eked out over the course of the game, and the focus on one single lead character begins to expand to cover the whole cast. Uematsu continued to focus a great deal of his attentions on ensuring that the game's music conveyed the mood of the specific scenes or the characters on screen at the time. This movement away from character-specific themes and towards telling a more convincing emotional story is a result of the series' shift towards a more realistic aesthetic and the PS1's ability to host a much larger and more diverse range of music than had been available before. When describing how he scored the emotional scenes, he cites the difficulty in knowing exactly what his music needs to say, as the script was in flux all the way up to the cusp of shipping the game. Opinions of the game's protagonist are often defined by the age you were when you first played the game. Squall is mopey, monosyllabic, rude and self-interested. In short, he's a 17-year-old boy. Looking back on how he was written, I have grown no fonder of him as a lead character, but I am also aware that I was 14 or so when I first played it, and while I undoubtedly had my own share of teenage acts at the time, I just didn't understand why a conventionally attractive 17-year-old boy would be so rude when he's living the life of a badass mercenary, surrounded by women who flirt with him all the time. At the time, I thought that maybe it was just a case of how the Japanese thought an archetypal bad boy behaved, but the more I think about it now, the more it seems like it was actually strong writing to show how insecure and afraid he was, as well as a great place to start when developing his character arc. The game's turn away from character themes wasn't strictly universal, however. While it could be argued that some characters have themes, such as Laguna's The Man with the Machine Gun, it's certain that there is one standout piece that works in tandem with Liberi Fatale to define one of the most important relationships in the game. This song is Eyes On Me. Where Liberi Fatale is used to signal conflict, specifically between Squall and Cypher, Eyes On Me is a traditional, some might say cliché, love song that is frequently used to punctuate moments of romance between Squall and his comrade-come-love interest, Renoa Hartley. It's important to make the distinction between a character theme and a theme for a specific relationship, as the latter further emphasises the emotional weight that Uematsu intended to inject into every moment that it was heard. Unsurprisingly, as a 14-year-old boy, I was not a big fan of a soppy love ballad in my video game about giant robot crabs and sword guns. Those are both real, by the way, look it up. But I can't deny that I was confused to hear actual song lyrics in my Final Fantasy game, to the point where I can still remember the scene where Squall and Renoa are returning to Earth aboard the Ragnarok while Eyes On Me played. Here's a little bit of it. So popular was this track that Uematsu won a Japanese pop music award, and according to some internet research, 
It still gets occasional play on the radio and in department stores as a quote-unquote classic. This is partly due to the contribution of Chinese singer Fei Wong, who came out on top of an extensive audition process, with Uematsu claiming that her voice and mood seemed to match his vision of the song exactly, and that her ethnicity fit with the international image of the series. Of course, Uematsu's preference for changing up musical genres persists throughout all of his work, and is especially prevalent in Final Fantasy VIII. One that sticks in the mind is the triple triad card game theme, Shuffle or Boogie, which is an inescapably, frustratingly catchy tune that I hope you'll forgive me for sharing with you now. about you Colin is, is there any is there any piece of uh, piece of music that, that gives you a particularly strong mental image when you hear it there's a few but I mean to be honest the first one that comes to mind as much as I hate to admit it is the triple triad theme from Final Fantasy 8 <laughs> oh yeah yeah because <laughs> I remember yeah, is, at the time is... I hated triple triad <laughs> but now it's about the one bit of Final Fantasy 8 I look back on fondly yeah, it's yeah. That is uh, a potent piece of music. That one. Um, I think we spoke about it quite recently, completely unrelated to this. I think it was in a <laughs> Facebook post, but it is that will stick in your head for the rest of the day. And it's it's literally just that kind of springy boingy 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 yeah. boingy sound at the start. I think there's some current pop song that sounds vaguely has a vaguely similar <laughs> boingy sound in it so I just my brain just goes right back to that whenever I hear it while these are some of the most memorable standout tracks from this entry in the series Final Fantasy 8 definitely feels like where the gloves came off for Uematsu with his full on prog rock battle music such as Force Your Way and Don't Be Afraid being brilliant albeit a little predictable there is also an orchestral waltz a 50s rock iteration of the Chocobo theme, and a supposed spy theme that sounds like a late-night Channel 5 movie soundtrack. It's not even one of my favourites, but here, listen to a few seconds of The Spy and try to imagine the scenario where you'd be able to take this music seriously. In summary, Final Fantasy VIII was another turning point in the series when it came to music, where Final Fantasy VII pulled up just short of fully orchestral music with choirs, Final Fantasy VIII burst through the technical barriers with some of the most memorable tunes in the series. Uematsu's ability to inject a myriad range of genres into his work continued to be a great strength and undoubtedly kept the score fresh and interesting. Speaking of fresh and interesting, 
the next chapter in the Final Fantasy series ironically decided to freshen things up by returning to a more traditionally fantastical setting in the form of Final Fantasy IX's medieval-style world of Gaia. After the gritty metropolitan feel of Final Fantasy VII's Midgar and the angsty, brooding story of Final Fantasy VIII's teenage mercenaries, the ninth entry to the roster was something of a return to tradition for Square. The man who was the driving force behind Final Fantasy from the start, Hironobu Sakaguchi, has been quoted as saying that Final Fantasy IX is his favourite game in the series, as it is the very epitome of what he wanted to achieve in a JRPG. This game was to be the last Final Fantasy on the original PlayStation, so Sakaguchi was keen to use it to steer the franchise back towards its traditional origins. The game still leaned heavily on the concept of identity crisis as a motivator for its characters, but the tone of the game seemed much more playful and fun. This tonal shift was marked not only by the narrative and characters, but by the almost watercolour cartoon aesthetic that I fondly remember. The characters still looked great, but were designed in such a way that they reminded players of the fantasy archetypes that the series had seemingly left behind for its last two iterations. The protagonist, Zidane, was a monkey-tailed pirate who refused to play by even his own captain's rules, while fan favourite Vivi was a black mage whose face is never shown. His design is a clear homage to the black mage design of the original games, with his bright yellow eyes being his only visible feature underneath his giant wizard's hat. So, it's safe to assume that the aim of the game was to reintroduce the concept of high fantasy to the series, with Uematsu even touring European castles in the hunt for inspiration before he even sat down to compose. This comes with its own inherent sense of whimsy, an innocence that definitely permeates the narrative of the game. But how was this reflected in the score? In short, Final Fantasy IX brings some of Uematsu's best work together to create a score that is beautiful, joyous, and technically complete in a way that had never been managed before. While I love listening to the actual game music of Final Fantasy, it can be difficult to listen to hours of music from the first eight games, as the technical need to rely heavily on synthesizers ensures a certain generic nature, no matter how talented Uematsu was at diversifying the score itself. If Final Fantasy VIII was the proof of concept for an orchestral and choral score, then Final Fantasy IX is the result of years of technical skullduggery to bring an almost entirely orchestral score to the PS1. 160 tracks in total make it into the full soundtrack, while around 140 were selected for the actual game release, scattered as they were throughout the game's four discs. While there are still some very synth-heavy tracks in there, and I'll add that I'd miss them if they were gone, the range of individual instruments across the different tracks blew my tiny mind as a teenager. Being able to make out the distinctive strings, brass section and harps across most of the game's music is something that makes it so much more rewarding to listen to nowadays. Of course, the music of the older games has been adapted and remade, but we'll soon get round to that later. For now, here's some of Escape from Alexandria, the score to one of the most impressive moments in the early game.
return to tradition also heralded the return of character themes to Final Fantasy. Every main character has their own distinctive theme that Uematsu artfully crafts to tell the player just enough about the character in question. Viri's theme is playful and innocent, while the overbearing royal protector Steiner has a theme that is slow and plodding, indicating that he's always one step behind his ward and doesn't really enjoy his work at all. Zidane's theme is hopeful and optimistic, reflecting his adventurous nature, and Garnet's theme sounds serene, but tinged with doubt at the realisation that she lives in a gilded cage. These are truly masterful works of conveying the personas that players will be spending the next 40 or more hours with. Here's a little medley of them now. of fate, Uematsu's brief for the score was quite limited. He was asked to create themes for just the eight main characters, something to convey tension and a couple of battle tracks. All in all, his brief was around 20 tracks. I can only assume that this was due to the game's return to a more simplistic score, focusing on specific characters and not focusing so heavily on emotional resonance for what was going on in the scene. As mentioned before, Uematsu declined to keep it simple and spent the next year composing 160 tracks. This even included a two-week trip to visit Europe, touring medieval towns and old German castles. Despite the aesthetic, he was determined to keep things from getting too stale, so he focused on diversifying the range of instruments he would use when recording. This included the kazoo and the dulcimer. There was one downside to the game's motif of honouring the older games in the series, and that was that the game was accused of resting on its laurels a bit too much. This criticism was extended to the score, which includes tracks that are adaptations of music from the other games in the series. While this was clearly intended as fan service and acknowledgement of the games that came before it, this did somewhat take the edge off a score that is full of new and interesting music. I was in the fortunate position of only having played numbers 7 and 8 at this point, so most of this issue was lost on me, 
I think I must have grinned ear to ear when I heard President Rufus's parade march from Final Fantasy VII being played by an in-game orchestra in nine. As with Final Fantasy VIII, this entry in the series has a vocal track as its signature track. Melodies of Life is arguably Garnet's proper theme song. The one we played previously is more relevant to when she is hiding who she really is at the start of the game, posing as Dagger. Much like Eyes on Me, Melodies of Life was released as a single and has been played at concerts across the world. Personally, I think it's the better of the two tracks, but then again, neither of them are particular favourites of mine. Here's a taste of Melodies of Life. In short, the score to Final Fantasy IX is both technically and artistically brilliant, and while it marks the end of my personal love story with the series, I think it laid a lot of the groundwork for expectations when it came to not only Final Fantasy, but JRPGs as a genre with regards to the score. It's ambitious, soulful and joyous in a way that other entries were perhaps lacking. The consistent use of actual instruments and the addition of strong melodies without sacrificing pathos is perhaps one of the game's biggest strengths. Amongst fans of the series, Nine is often seen as being underappreciated, and I can understand this. Many fans who had grown attached to the series after Seven had come to expect a certain type of game that Nine just didn't deliver. As one of those fans, I recall taking a few hours to get on board with this game about a child wizard and his monkey pirate friend. But when looking back, Nine definitely stands above Eight in my opinion, of course, the music is only one small part of what made the game great, but researching it for this podcast has really made me appreciate how Final Fantasy IX brought together the components of a game that define the kind of experience I still look for today. Rich and well-defined characters, a mixture of comedy and drama, a wonderful and exciting world to explore, and a top-notch score that you can listen to for hours without getting tired of. And that brings us to the end of part two in our journey through the career of Nobuo Uematsu. Join me next time as Uematsu begins to step away from Final Fantasy, eventually going his own way, at least for a little while. We will discover the game scores he has made that you might not be familiar with, and explore the effect his music has had on pop culture around the world. Thanks again for listening, and I hope that you've enjoyed the podcast. As always, I love to hear from listeners and would appreciate any feedback that you might have. My aim is always to entertain, as well as educating people about one of my favourite things in the world, the wonderful music of video games. The home of the show is always www.roguester.co.uk slash thatsoundslikefun, where I will add show notes and links to the many, many interesting articles and videos that help me to put all of this together. You can always find me on Facebook and Instagram at thatsoundslikefun as well. Thanks for listening. Bye.